Welcome to this episode of the Talco Talks podcast series, focusing on topical issues in the telecommunications industry. I'm Dipti Govind, a technical accounting manager in the PwC South African practice, and I will be your host. Our aim is to keep you up to date on key accounting issues in the telecommunications industry. Joining me on this podcast is Renita Dwarika, my most popular guest. Welcome to the first Talco Talks episode for the year, Renita. Thank you, Dipti. I feel like a celebrity. So in this episode, we're going to share some year-end accounting reminders that should be top of mind as many entities go into their next year-end or interim reporting cycles. Well, let's get right into it then. As a start, it is quite clear that COVID-19 has and continues to have an impact on a number of accounting areas, some more significantly than others. So Renita, can you start us off by reminding us about some of the topical accounting considerations as a result of COVID-19? 100%. There are many aspects to consider when it comes to COVID-19. But what I would like to firstly remind our listeners about is the amendment that was made to IFRS 16, which is our leasing standard. Yes, the amendment, which I understand, is effective for annual reporting periods beginning on or after 1 June 2020, with earlier application being permitted. Yes, you spot on. Now, given the challenging economic climate resulting from the impact of COVID-19, we found that lessors may grant lessees rental concessions. These concessions can take a variety of forms, uh, from payment holidays to deferral of lease payments. The amendment to IFRS 16 provides an optional expedient for lessees from having to assess whether a rental concession received relating to COVID-19 is a lease modification. So basically, lessees may elect to account for such a concession as if they are not lease modifications. This will result in the lessee accounting for the concession as a negative variable lease payment. What is important to remember is that the optional expedient is only available to lessees and not to lessors, and that there are certain requirements that have to be met in order for a lessee to be eligible to use the expedient. Thanks for that, Renita. For more information on the details of the amendment and its application, our listeners can tune in to Episode 6 of the Talco Talks podcast series, which covers the amendment in further detail. Another area, which is an ongoing consideration for many companies, including Talco operators, is the impairment of non-financial assets. Renita, what are your top three points on impairment of non-financial assets to share with our listeners? I will try for three, Dipti, but might add a few more in. Impairment has certainly been a topic of discussion over the past year, and naturally so because of the impact that COVID-19 has had on entities. I'll start off with the cash flows used in the impairment model, for example, a discounted cash flow model or a DCF. Now, in times of greater uncertainty, as we are now experiencing, in determining the recoverable amount, 
it may be more reasonable for entities to use multiple cash flow scenarios and apply relative probability weightings to those cash flows. This will enable you to get to a weighted average set of cash flows for your discounted cash flow model. This approach would be more useful than using a single cash flow forecast and a single discount rate as this would tend to place significant emphasis on the selection of your discount rate. So from what I'm hearing, a key takeaway here would be to incorporate as much of the uncertainties into the cash flows under different probability scenarios rather than through discount rate adjustments. Yes, that sums it up nicely. I'll move on to the second reminder, which is an area which can get quite complex and this is the interaction between IFRA 16, our lease standard, and IS 36, which is our impairment of asset standard. Now, important to remember is that the IFRA 16 right of use asset is subject to impairment testing under IS 36. And here, challenges do arise for our discounting, discounted cash flow modeling. A brief recap of some of the items which operators should keep in mind when performing impairment test is firstly, there will be more assets in the carrying amount of the CGU as it now includes the right of use assets. Secondly, there could be a change in the cash flows because the lease payments that are part of the lease liability are excluded as they are financing cash flows. The discount rate, which often uses the entity's weighted average cost of capital as a starting point, could be different due to the impact of the lease liabilities when determining the debt equity mix. The lease liability will increase the debt of the entity. And lastly, if the increase in the present value of the cash flows is lower then the increase in the CGU's assets, which now includes all of our right of use assets being tested, then the headroom between the carrying amount and the recoverable amount of the CGU will reduce. Thanks for that. And on that point, listeners can tune in to Talco Talks Episode 5, where the interaction between IFRS 16 and IS 36 was unpacked in detail You mentioned you had three items to chat through. Yes. The final and very important reminder on impairment is around the assumptions used in the impairment test. Now, where an impairment test is performed at a cash generating unit level, then key assumptions covering these cash generating units should be clearly disclosed. Where material, assumptions specific to each CGU should be identified. Significant changes from the prior year to the assumptions used, such as the discount rate and the CGU's cash flow projections, should also be explained. The impairment disclosures in IS 36 are quite extensive, but IS 1 also requires disclosure of critical accounting judgments and key sources of estimation uncertainty. You're quite right, Dipti. Further, impairment is a focus area for our regulators who are looking for increased transparency in disclosure in this area, 
The COVID-19 pandemic has put this under the spotlight even more. Listeners can refer to the PwC December year-end accounting reminders publication, which is publicly available at viewpoint.pwc.com. Additionally, our in-depth COVID-19 publication on various accounting issues may also be accessed via Viewpoint. So moving on from COVID-19, what is next on the list of reminders to share with our listeners? The next topic is an interesting one, which has also been of interest to the IFRS Interpretations Committee, and that is supplier finance arrangements. That sounds quite interesting, Renita. But before we get into the accounting issue, could you briefly explain how a supplier finance arrangement works? Certainly. So in these types of arrangements, an operator, for example, purchases inventory, generally your mobile handsets, from its supplier. The entity has an obligation to pay the supplier, and this gives rise to a trade payable for the operator. The operator may want to take advantage of extended payment terms to improve their working capital. In order to do this, the entity may enter into an arrangement with, for example, a financial institution. The financial institution agrees to pay the, pay the amount the operator owes to the operator's supplier, and the operator agrees to pay the financial institution, either at the same time or at a later date than when the supplier is paid. In practice, these arrangements are also quite prevalent as part of CapEx purchase arrangements. This is indeed an interesting topic. I do recall that the Interpretations Committee discussed this issue. Could you highlight the main discussion points from there? Yes, such arrangements raise the question as to whether the trade payable that is subject to the supplier financing arrangement should be derecognized and replaced by, for example, a bank borrowing. To make that assessment, there is already existing guidance in IFRS 9, which is our financial instrument standard. So we know that a trade payable is a financial instrument measured at amortized cost, and it should be derecognized either when there is a legal extinguishment or when there is a substantial modification, for example, a change in the terms of the instrument. If there is a substantial modification or legal extinguishment, the trade payable is derecognized, and another type of financial liability, for example, a bank borrowing, is recognized. If there is no substantial modification or legal extinguishment, then the trade payable continues to be recognized. These arrangements sound quite complex, and it seems that they could have a pervasive impact on a number of areas in the financial statements. That is a good observation, Dipti. So recently, supplier finance arrangements uh, are increasing, and naturally, this is attracting some attention with the regulators. Uh, The presentation of the relevant balances as bank debt or trade creditors will also drive the presentation of the subsequent cash flows in the statement of cash flows. Could you perhaps expand on this in a bit more detail? Sure. So assessing the nature of the liability in this arrangement, 
will drive the cash flow classification. For example, if the entity considers the liability to remain a trade payable, that is part of the working capital, then the entity presents the cash outflows to settle the liability as operating activities in the cash flow statement. In contrast, if the entity considers the liability to be a bank borrowing, then the entity presents the cash outflows to settle the bank borrowing as a financing activity in its statement of cash flows. The next thought that comes to mind would be that transparent disclosure of these arrangements would be very important. Most definitely. IFRS 7, which is our standard dealing with disclosure of financial instruments, requires companies' accounts to disclose information that allows readers to understand the nature of and risk around financial instruments, including liquidity risk. So in the case of the supplier finance arrangements, the nature of the liability that the operator has, that is either trade payable or bank borrowing, is an important disclosure. Furthermore, IS1 requires companies to consider whether balances are financing or working capital in nature and present them accordingly. Now, key disclosures would be the nature of any material supplier financing arrangements, the implications for the company's liquidity together with the relevant amounts, and any significant accounting judgments. Thanks for those reminders, Renita. This has been really helpful. You're very welcome, Dipti. This brings us to the end of this episode of Talco Talks. Stay tuned for the next episode where we will unpack sale and leaseback transactions. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the South African member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.